Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for all of the blessings you have given us, Lord, uh, that we're able to have a relationship with you, Lord, through Christ. We thank you for this salvation, Lord, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit and the help that he is, Lord, in our ability uh, to uh, read your word, Lord, to uh, do all things uh, in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord, through through the Spirit. Lord, I pray for this time that you um, clear our minds, Lord, and clear our hearts uh, to be able to receive the teachings of your word this evening. I pray these things in your name. Amen. So as we finish up uh, the hermeneutics series, we're looking at, in a way, two different groups, but these groups overlap, poetry and wisdom literature. Specifically, uh, in the Old Testament. So, I already see on top of your note sheet, it says New Testament. Make sure to correct that and change that to Old Testament. Um, So, we started, obviously, with the New Testament genres first, and we're finishing up with the Old Testament genre. So, it's poetry and wisdom literature in the Old Old Testament. Um, So, introduction uh, in this section. Could anyone tell me what books would be considered the poetry books or would fall in this category, the poetic books of the Old Testament. Psalms, all right, that's a huge one. Psalms is one. Proverbs. Proverbs, okay. Lamentations. Lamentations. Songs of Solomon. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes could be. I I think the first four that we uh, mentioned, uh, including Job as well, Ecclesiastes uh, would be a lot of times considered more in the wisdom literature. Uh, but I would say Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Lamentations are normally considered the main poetic books. But really, as I said earlier, the poetry and wisdom books really go hand in hand because it's a lot of overlap. Uh, there is pretty much poetry in almost every Old Testament book. Even if it's not a predominant part of an Old Testament book, it's almost in every Old Testament book, at least some sort of Hebrew poetry. All right, so then for the wisdom literature, uh, what books do we have for wisdom literature? What was that? Mm-mm. Not Daniel. That's a good guess, though. Proverbs. Proverbs. So we listed Proverbs in uh, yeah. the poetry as well, but it would fall still under the wisdom literature. Song of Solomon, maybe. Songs of Solomon. I've uh, seen some people put that on the list as well, but it's not normally on the list of uh, wisdom literature. There's three main books. Uh, Ecclesiastes, and then the last one, we said Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, sometimes Song of Solomon. And the last one is has three letters. Job. Job. Right? Job is would be the last one for the wisdom literature. Uh, so what is the purpose of 
poetry. Uh, obviously, for Old Testament poetry, uh, we're talking about Hebrew po- poetry, which is a bit different than English poetry. But for English poetry, what are some characteristics of poetry? Why do people write poems? What role does poetry play? As opposed to, let's say, a letter you were to write to give instruction, like the New Testament letters. Solicit a feeling. What was that? To elicit a feeling. Yeah, so emotions is a huge part of poetry, right? To draw out the emotions, to make you feel the things that are being described. So emotion, feeling is all, is all part of it. Uh, in one of the books I was reading, it gives this analogy to describe the difference between poetry and uh, letters, New Testament letters. So Old Testament poetry and New Testament letters. It says, uh, and this, this illustration uh, takes place in D.C., so I thought it was appropriate for us. It says, uh, moving from the New Testament letters to Old Testament poetry is like crossing the Washington Mall from the Air and Space Museum and entering to the National Gallery of Art. Uh, so it's that difference, right? It's a lot of informational, uh, very uh, um, concise in its order, logical in its order is the New Testament letters, and then it gets very artsy, obviously, in the art gallery where it's supposed to draw emotion as you look through the different works of art. So I thought that was helpful. Uh, So we have identified the books in both, uh, both categories. So let's look at, the, we're going to first talk about poetry. Remember, it's Old Testament poetry, not New Testament poetry, as it's wrongly labeled on top. Uh, elements of Old Testament poetry. Uh, some of these things here is a little bit of a review. Um, we've talked about some of the elements of poetry. I forget how long ago. It was weeks, weeks back. Uh, before we sh- started to go through the different genres in the in the Bible, uh, but you could see an element. One of the main elements of poetry it's concise. Uh, poetic texts are uh, comprised of short and compact lines with few words. Uh, I think that's pretty straightforward. The for structure, we talked a bit about parallelism before. Uh, does anyone remember? Uh, these three, we talked about these three types of parallelism in poetry before. Uh, does anyone remember when we did that? No. We did a little exercise when we looked up three different types of poetry with parallelism, and I wanted to see if we could identify which category, what type of parallelism they would have gone in. Does that sound more familiar? Lonnie's shaking his head, yes. So that's good, at least. Beth is shaking her head, yeah, so that's good that some people remember. So we're not going to necessarily do that now, but you could see these are the basic types of parallelism that you'll find in Hebrew poetry. Uh, There are more exhaustive lists, of course, but these are the basic three uh, where some are synonymous, where the first line will describe something, and then the second line in that will... uh, Describe the same thing in a different way, using different words. Uh, we have developmental, where 
the second line builds off of what the first line has already stated. It could have been about God or um, about really what anything. And then the next one is how uh, the two lines could contrast. Uh, and we see a lot of this in Proverbs, actually, as well, where uh, wisdom literature combines with poetry and things could contrast. Uh, but we're not going to get to examples specifically with this tonight. Um, and then acrostics uh, is also very popular in poetry. I think we're familiar with this in English. I know we like to do this uh, many times when you want to come up with a fun name and come up with a meaning and we just make an acrostic out of it. Uh, so uh, with acrostics in Hebrew poetry, a lot of times it's just with, uh, with the Hebrew alphabet. Right? So you would use the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet to start the next line. Uh, maybe it could be the first uh, word in that line, or some of them are set up a little bit different in the various uh, examples I have listed there. So we have Psalms, Lamentations, and Proverbs here are just different examples of where this takes place. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit difficult when it comes to English because we kind of lose that, or at least we uh, l- lose the um, uh, how apparent it might be. We could easily read one of these passages and not even realize it's an acrostic, which is unfortunate. Uh, but it's important to, I guess, look back every once in a while at the original language to see the intention that goes behind some of this poetry. So this is the basic formula, uh, basic structure of uh, the different elements to it. Um, Next, we have the figurative imagery. And this is where it gets difficult with hermeneutics. Remember, hermeneutics specifically is referring to how we interpret the text. So if a lot of figurative imagery is used language is used in poetry, uh, how do we know when to take something literal? When do we know when to not take something literal? Again, we talked a bit about this last week uh, because there's a lot of poetry and prophecy when we talked about prophecy. So this is where it gets uh, a little bit more difficult. Uh, You could see here is a quote that I thought was helpful. The authors are conveying real thoughts, events, and emotions to us, right, in poetry, that uh, is literal truth. So we don't want to say it's not literal, right? When we say it's figurative imagery, it is literal truth, but they express this truth figuratively. So uh, sometimes there's figurative language to express some reality that's like a truth event, true people, true things that happened, but it's in colorful language or language that is meant to paint a picture in your mind as poetry is intended uh, to be done that way. So I want us to work through some passages for some examples of these figures uh, of speech. Uh, We're going to talk about similes, metaphors, and analogies, uh, and some other, some other things. Um, so, who wants to look up 
Proverbs 11.22. We're just going to be looking at short verses really quick just to see um, some short, uh, small poetry lines and see the figures of speech happening here. So is that your hand up, Michael? So Proverbs 11.22. Who wants to look up Psalm 42.1? Psalm 42.1. All right, Tom. So whenever you look up these passages, you could read them out loud. Proverbs 11.22. Correct. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Okay. So this would be an example of what type of... Um, would it be a simile, a metaphor, or a metaphor? Let's start with those two. What is a simile? Like or as. Like or as, right? So this would be an example of a simile here uh, in comparison, comparing, right? Uh, Tom, you want to read the second one? As the deer pants for the water brooks, my soul pants for you, God. All right, so that's a famous psalm right there. We sing that one a lot. Uh, would that be metaphor or simile? Like or as, so it'd be a simile, right? Uh, so this is just like English class 101 again. <laughs> Something I did not in, very much enjoy when I was younger, but it's all important. Uh, so those are examples of similes. So we have other many examples of different metaphors, obviously, throughout the poetic text. We have Psalm 21.3. We're not going to... We don't need to turn to these ones right now. We have Psalm 65 or 68, 5, Proverbs 17, 22. If you want to write these down, you could write them down as examples. Uh, but obviously there are numerous examples of different metaphors throughout uh, the poetic um, genre. And then we also have indirect analogies. Uh, so an indirect analogy could be a little bit difficult uh, because it's like a metaphor where we see something is imaged as something else in a metaphor, not using like an or as, right? That's the difference between a metaphor and a simile. But an indirect analogy, what makes that different from a metaphor, uh, is that many times the item that is being described isn't necessarily identified. Uh, so let me explain this. Let's turn to Jeremiah 30, uh, 23. So if, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah uh, 30, 23. So this is an, an example of an indirect analogy which wouldn't necessarily fall under simile or metaphor. It's closer to a metaphor here uh, within the poetic language. Uh, it says, Behold the storm of the Lord. Uh, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. So this starts uh, by saying the storm, behold the storm of the Lord. It's, giving a metaphor for something that's not even identified yet. It's identified in the very next line, so it's easy to tell what 
is this referring to? Is this a literal storm that's brewing up in the sky at this point? No, it's, it's referring to the anger of the Lord or the wrath of the Lord. Uh, so that would be an example of an indirect analogy. This is an easier example of one. Uh, but let's look at more of these. So I need some people to look up more references for us. So can someone look up Psalm 22, verse 13? Psalm 22, verse 13. We're still under the indirect analogies uh, here. All right, Beth. And then I need one other person to look up Psalm 18, 16. Psalm 18, 16. All right, Lonnie. Uh, let me get there myself really quick. So Psalm 22, 13. They open wide their mouths at me like a ra- ravening and roaring lion. Yeah, they open up their mouths at me like a and roaring, ra- raving and roaring lion. So, what is being referred to here? What's happening in this passage? Uh, there is uh, an analogy that's being done, right? That they are like a raving and roaring lion, uh, but it's not necessarily identified really right away, even in the verses earlier. Uh, so, who would this be? This would be simply the enemies of the person writing down the psalm, right? They open their mouths at me. We see the enemies opening, his enemies opening their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion where they are all around him. Just give him that analogy. And then the second one, Psalm eighteen sixteen. so a little bit earlier, we have something very similar. Uh, Lonnie, you're reading that one? Sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he risked, uh, out of waters, okay, it's only one sentence. He sent me on high, he took me and drew me out of many waters, he rescued me uh, from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Um, I might have had the wrong passage actually for this one. Uh, because that's not necessarily what I was looking for. Uh, what I was looking for is another example of uh, where enemies are described uh, from the psalmist, against the psalmist, where they're all encompassing him, uh, and God delivers them. Actually, no, this is the right psalm. I'm sorry about that. So yeah, it is Psalm 18:16. He sent from on high and took me. He drew me out of the many waters. So it's the imagery happened here of the many waters. Who are the many waters that's coming all around him? Right? So this is uh, the imagery where we see that God is drawing him out of the surrounding, saving him from his enemies or delivering him from his enemies. We don't interpret this literally in the sense that there's a lot of water uh, that he's 
that he's has that he's being drawn out of. He's not like in an ocean that God is taking him out of, right? So this is the imagery that's being used. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is an example of an indirect analogy, where it's not explicitly stated who or what is um, being portrayed in this image. So I'm glad I did have the right reference. <laughs> so these are some examples, right? Figurative uh, imagery. Uh, we also have hyper- hyperbole. What's a hyperbole in English? We have that also in Hebrew. Exaggeration, Exaggeration right? Where something is, is exaggerated. We see this a lot uh, throughout the Psalms. Uh, specifically, I think. And some examples of this, you can look this up later if you wanted to. Psalm 42, verse 3. Psalm 18, verse 42. Psalm 40, verse 12. Right. In order to express this emotion that we're supposed to feel as we read the Psalms, a lot of exaggeration, hyperbole, is, is used uh, to express it. And then also personification. What's a personification? to something that's not human. Yeah, so giving human attributes, characteristics is something that is uh, not human or, or living um, in that way. And so some examples of this that you could write down, Psalm, verse, or Psalm chapter 24, verse 7, Isaiah 44, verse 23, Isaiah 1, 2, and Proverbs 1, 20. So, obviously, this is just a very small selection of examples amongst a whole lot. All right, so now I want us to go through the interpretive journey, interpreting Old Testament poetry, uh, and practice this through a specific text. Then after this, we'll get into the wisdom side of things. So, uh, we're going to finish up the poetry uh, discussion here, while still, I guess, dealing a little bit with poetry on the wisdom, with the wisdom books, but predominantly we'll finish that here. So Psalm, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 116 for our uh, study. Psalm 116 verses 1 through 4. And we'll, go, we'll take this text through the five steps that we've been working through uh, many weeks now. So... Does, can anyone read verses 1 through 4 for me? All right, Michael. Thank you. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. All right. So if we're starting with the first step, right? The first step has always been grasp the text in their town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? What's one of the first things that we do when we start with this uh, first step? First thing. What's going on? What's actually going on? What was that? Say what's going on. Yeah, what's, what's actually going on? And how do we uh, do that? 
uh, we do that by observing. So observing is one of the first steps, of course, right? This text. So as we observe this text, and we just talked about how uh, poetry uses parallelism a lot of the times through, throughout the Psalms, do we see any parallelism throughout these four verses? And what's being, paral- uh, what's being compared if something is being compared? Uh, and how many different distinct thoughts are, are in these first four verses? So let's start with verse 1 to try to uh, take one step at a time. It says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Uh, do we see, in, are, are there any observations here as it relates to uh, what we just talked about with poetry? Well, you talked about parallelism mm-hmm. and for developmental it says the second line develops the thought of the first line so the second verse are you, are you when you say the second line are you talking about the second line as in two lines within one verse yeah that's a good question so when you see how poetry is laid out in your bibles right a lot of times it's not just a single verse that's one that's together. Uh, so uh, a line is simply a line and how it's laid out in Scripture. So a lot of times a complete thought isn't necessarily just in a sentence or in a verse, but it's in a single line. And then even if the next second line is even the same sentence, that's a, a lot of times a whole new thought uh, in, in poetry. Either way you look at it, halfway through verse 1, he says, because, and he develops the thought. Yeah. And then moving into verse 2, he continues to say because and further develops it. That's true. That's true. Let, let's look at the lines really quick on verse 1. How many lines, distinct lines, are in verse 1? There's two. Okay. So do we see, I mean, it's different for different translations and how it's laid out with the words. But here, my, my Bible says, I love the Lord because he has heard. That's the completion of the first line, right? And then the second line, my voice and my pleas, or my voice and my pleas for mercy. So how do those two lines compare to each other? Do they parallel each other in any way? And if they do, how? Uh, we will get to the second verse in a bit, as Elliot was uh, wanting to get to, but Let's start with this, these two lines here. I love the Lord because he has heard. It, sure, it is a complete sentence, right? So there's no period at the end of heard. Yeah, that's why I said yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. But are you saying the two lines are a complete sentence? No, I'm saying just that first line could be a sentence by itself. Like you don't need the my voice, my pleas for mercy. Mm-hmm. It's only adding to it. It's true. So... If do these lines parallel each other in any way? Uh, would would we say they're developmental? Would we say they're uh, synonymous, or would they not fit in a perfect category? Sometimes they don't necessarily fit in a perfect category. I think the second line's more developmental. It's all in the first line. Yeah. Okay. You don't have 
If you just had the second line on its own, my voice and my supplications, without the first part, that wouldn't make any sense. So it's developing the idea, as yeah. you said. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with that, right? Uh, so we see we see that developmental parallelism in the in the very beginning here, uh, and then as we continue into verse two, then. Uh, we have several lines, a couple lines again here. Because he has inclined his ear to me, next line, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Second line. Uh, how do these two lines relate to each other? Another cause and effect state, statement, just like the first one. Mm-hmm. So There's so many f- parts of poetry as well when it comes to, to this that we obviously don't have time to discuss. And the cause and effect component is something we could also go really explore in Hebrew poetry that we just won't have time to, obviously, uh, tonight. Yeah, but because he inclined his ear to me, therefore, or he could take away the word therefore, uh, say, he, he inclined his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I Live. So we see it kind of building off of each other again there, right? Still develop. Okay, that's a good note to notice. Uh, so it kind of flips it from verse 1. Okay. Uh, let's, let's notice the lines in verse 3. Uh, the snares of death. Uh, some other translations say the cords of death. I don't know if you have that translation. Uh, You have that one. The cords or the snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. That's line two. And then a third line here in uh, verse three. I suffer distress, distress and anguish. How are these lines relating to each other? They're synonymous. They're synonymous. That's how I read it. Yeah, it's using different words, images to say the same thing, right? Uh, As we're doing this, though, also think about the imagery that's being expressed, right? The snares of death encompass me, uh, and the pangs of Sheol hold on to me. Like, try to literally uh, image, put those images in your head of what that would look like. Uh, let's do the final verse here. Then I called on the th- name of the Lord, first line, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. How are these two lines relating to each other? One of them is like a setup for the next part. It's developmental still. So it's more developmental. All right, yeah. Uh, so... As we're working through this first step, right, grasp the text in their town. We have to observe uh, the individual lines of the poetry of the poem uh, and see how they're relating to each other, right? Uh, and then, as I had mentioned just a little earlier, try to visualize the figures of speech. So, what is being expressed? I think uh, verse two. Let's look at verse two again. Because he inclined his ear to me. Uh, think of God coming, like showing his ear from heaven down onto him, 
right? He's inclining, giving his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. So we have the imagery of God's ear coming down, right? And then we have the imagery of these cords or these traps of death, like trying to take him down uh, to death, down to Sheol even, down to hell. And so there's a lot of uh, dark imagery then happening in verse 3 here. Right? So identify the parallelism if anything's happening there. Visualize the figures of speech. And then what's helpful next then is to try to enter the emotional world of the image. So picture this image happening, right? An ear from heaven is coming down to listen. And then he's going through so much anguish, he feels like he has cords pulling him down into the ground. Type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So try to feel the emotion though, right, as you read it. And this is the purpose that uh, poetry is supposed to play is for us to feel this type of emotion, right? So when we then try to write, well, what does this mean? What did this mean to the original audience? You could say something after you've gone through these steps, right? The writer is facing immediate, scary, or difficult situation, uh, an immediate, scary, difficult situation. He may even be close to death in some way. Uh, As verse 3 specifically uh, says, or gives image to, right? He might even be close to death uh, itself. He calls out to God, right? And God listens. You have the image of his ear coming down from heaven, if you want to picture it that way. Uh, He calls out to God who listens to him and then delivers him from this situation. He delivers him from this situation. Because of this, he expresses his love then for God. Uh, Verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. But we see his express for love in verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Right, So in the very first verse, you see kind of the outcome of it. He's loving the Lord because of what has already happened. Uh, what has already happened, he's already called out to the Lord. The Lord, Lord has already given his ear towards him. Uh, he called out to him because he felt the snares of death encompassing him. Uh, and the Lord has delivered his soul, and so therefore he, he loves him, right? And so all of these things happening in these four verses uh, that we talk about. Yeah? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it could be a, a component definitely of hyperbole, of an, an exaggeration. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily... Um, well, with a hyperbole, it's meant to paint a picture still in your head, right? Uh, of an exaggeration of, some, of something that he wants you to feel, the author wants you to feel. So even if it isn't immediate literal death that he might be facing, he wants you to feel the, um, the pains of it to that extent still. Uh, so yeah, that's a good point. It may not be literal death on the psalmist himself. 
the Lord inclined his ear to me, like, well, I think of it like this. I mean, God hears everything, right? So he's not like this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like the imagery you're supposed to think and feel as you uh, read through this type of a text. Uh, and this is, poetry is definitely something I am not used to. It's not necessarily my favorite type of genre. Um, but you could see the benefits of it, right? And how uh, you are intended to, you're supposed to use your imagination as you read it uh, to draw these images in your mind as it's described and then feel what you're intended to feel with these images. So whether that's a literal death or not. So... So that's why I say he may even feel close to death, but, but we don't know for sure. All right, so that's what it means, right, probably to the original audience with the poetry. So uh, second step, measure the width of the river. What are the differences between biblical audience and us? Um, Who do you think his audience is again? What was that? Who do you think his audience is again? Well, it would be the Jewish nation, right, who would be reading this uh, originally, the Jews. Uh, but I think it's more so how we answered step one, right? How do we answer step one? We could say something like the writer is facing uh, a scary or difficult situation, uh, at least, at most, potentially um, suffering potential death to some extent. But yeah, he calls out to God. And God delivers and he loves the Lord because God responds. Uh, so based on what I just said, what's the difference between us and how they would have interpreted the text? Is there a big difference or is there Well, they wouldn't be going through difference? the same thing that he's going through. What was that? He, they wouldn't be going through the same thing he's going through. So they, I mean, it would have been... Like a movie, somebody else watching a movie of what somebody else is going through. Yeah, that's true. So even the original audience wouldn't necessarily be um, going through what the author wrote. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. And that's like it was like written, like like when Deborah wrote that poem right after they crossed the Nile. Mm -hmm. Then the original art audience would have been Israel crossing the Nile. Yeah. But that's why I, was, I don't understand. But, but remember, these are written for the original audience. Uh, I mean, they're written so that we could feel what the uh, author wanted us to feel in the poetry, but they're written to us, given to us as God's word uh, for us to learn something from it. And first, obviously, the original audience. So what difference between us and the original audience, not the author, would there be in our interpretation of it? Or not interpretation, but what, what is our situation, situational difference? That's what we have to identify in the second step. I don't think there is much of a difference. Uh, one of the differences, so for an example, um, is if there was, this person was facing immediate death or uh, a very scary situation that would lead to death. Um, we're not necessarily facing that right now. Um, 
Um, that could be a difference in step two. Uh, that could even be a difference between the author and the original audience, but as you were pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. Unless he was talking about like, well, we're getting ready to face a war. Yeah. And like we're not, but if you're a Ukrainian Christian, you were, you would be. So there would be less difference then. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. That's all good things to make note of as you work through this. And also, just don't get hung up exactly in how it's worded because these five steps are worded the exact same for no matter what text you look at. So it might be you might want to word them a little bit different for it to make sense uh, with poetry maybe and distinguishing the author and the original audience if that's helpful for you. Uh, All right, third step. Cross the principalizing bridge. What is the theological principle in this text? What would you say? When you're in a bad place, call to the Lord. When you're in a bad place, call to the Lord. That's That's a good one. We should worship God because he hears our cries and saves us. All right, worshiping is a good part of it, right? Uh, I wrote, God's people should express their love when he hears them and delivers them from difficult and frightening situations, such as death. Or we don't have to even go that far if it is a hyperbole. (laughs) Right? So we, as God's people, should express our love, as the psalmist does in the very first verse, when God hears us and delivers us from difficult and frightening situations. Um, remember, when you were making the principalizing bridge, it has to be timeless, culturless, all these things, so it could apply faithfully still to the text and what it originally meant, but then also still be then applied to us. Uh, as we cross the principalizing bridge, cross the river of the differences. All right, consult the biblical map. How does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Does the New Testament teaching modify or qualify this principle? And if so, how? Remember, New Testament can qualify Old Testament principles because of Christ in the New Covenant. Uh, Are there any qualifications or modifications that we think we need to make to that we should express our love to God when he hears and delivers us from difficult situations? Not necessarily. Uh, we might make it more Christ-centered and say that he hears and delivers us in difficult situations through Christ, or I don't know, we could, we could add things like that in. Uh, but I don't think we necessarily need to qualify it too much based on just this this specific text. Uh, and then finally, grasp the text in our town. How should individual Christians live out this modified theological principle? Uh, modified if we were to modify it from the New Testament. Um, I mean, the examples would be endless of different ways we could apply it. Um, you could pri- apply it by how, how do you express your love to God? Uh, you make it personal and say, uh, I express my love to the Lord uh, through my daily devotions and my joy I have in that. And I need need to go to the Lord in those times when I'm especially feeling um, frightful or um, feeling 
Like I need to be delivered from a specific hard situation. And you could apply it in many different ways then uh, for you personally. So, all right. Any final comments on that last or on that passage? I know we kind of flew through it. First four verses, just for time, or yeah. So, would you do this like for the whole thing? Yeah, well, uh, just you could like do it. If you were like for... doing it in your quiet time, you wanted to like really yeah. grasp it. Would you like go through and decide whether it's developmental or synonymous or whatever, and then? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think a lot of this we can do um, without necessarily thinking about it. Without like thinking, okay, what's the next step? And then you uh, go through the next step in your mind and write it all down. I think we kind of implicitly do a lot of these things. Uh, so it goes quicker in that way when you, we compare the different lines and see how they relate to each other. I know for me, when it comes to poetry, I definitely do not take the time I need to in order to internalize it, try to feel what's being expressed, try to imagine it. like. Uh, what we kind of went through. I, I don't do that, and I could definitely grow, I think, in that. Because the purpose of poetry is not to just inform, uh, but it's, as we said, it's meant to help us feel through the, these types of emotions. So, but yeah, you could do it small sections, large sections, however you desire. If I were to try to do this, I would probably start stick with just small sections <laughs> because I would have to practice it myself. All right, let's move on. We only have 15 minutes left. Purpose of wisdom books. Now we're flipping over. And remember, I said a lot of them overlap, and we saw how many of them overlap in the very beginning where there's a lot of these books that are full of poetry are would be considered the wisdom literature. Uh, so what's the purpose of wisdom literature? What would you all say? What are some initial thoughts? If you were to describe what wisdom literature is and the purpose it plays for us as Christians, what would you say? Training moral character. Training moral character. That's really good. I would say something very similar uh, to that, right? So it's to show us what godly living is supposed to look like. Moral character, uh, what it looks like. Uh, to be Christ-like in your practical, everyday living. Right? So that's what wisdom literature is, is, meant, to, uh, is meant for. Uh, wisdom literature is not necessarily meant to just be like a set of commands and then do. But it's, it is that. There are commands in it. Uh, but it's more so uh, we're supposed to read it, reflect on it, and think through it. Uh, so that we then have reason to then uh, do the commands that God has given us to do. Why are we to live the way we are as Christians? Uh, wisdom literature helps give answers to that. So we're supposed to think through it, reflect on it, and not just uh, do a quick response uh, to uh, listening to God's... Obviously, we're supposed to have quick response to listening to God's commands, but it gives us reason as is what I'm intending to say here. So Proverbs. So we're going to talk about Proverbs, uh, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Those three books specifically in the section, right? Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. They're most commonly the three. Sometimes Song of Solomon could be put in this group, but we're not going to talk about that right now. So as all of them 
relate to each other, I think you need to understand how all three of them relate to each other in order to best interpret an individual book uh, of the three. So how do the three of them relate to each other? Uh, Proverbs kind of presents the rational or order or ordered norms of life. So when you look through the Proverbs, right, it says, um, it, it gives good rational ways that we should live a life that with different outcomes that, um, that we would think would come based on how we live our life. So uh, raise up your children in the ways of the Lord. So then, uh, how, does anyone know how it finishes? What? So that they will not depart, right? So it gives good advice, and then it gives what a good rational outcome should or ought to be in the perfect world. Um, it's, so that's how the book of Proverbs works, right? It gives, presents the rational, ordered norms of life, how things ought to work. But then we have Ecclesiastes and Job. The purpose of Ecclesiastes and Job is to show the exceptions to the rule. It's to show the exceptions to the rule that Proverbs presents. Uh, so while the other three books presents, yeah, the exceptions and rules. Okay. So as I said, Proverbs is rational and presents the ordered norms of life. Ecclesiastes shows man's limitations. And Job demonstrates the exceptions, as I said, to the rule. Where even if you fear the Lord and are blameless, bad things could still happen to you. Um, so those are the exceptions to the rule. I want us to spend some time in Ecclesiastes. Uh, the rest of the time, last 10 minutes, since we're running out of time a little bit. So if you all can, let's turn to Ecclesiastes. Out of the three books, uh, which one would you say is your favorite? Do you have a favorite out of these three? Proverbs. 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 Why Proverbs? Definitely would not be Ecclesiastes. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely would not be Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Why would you say Proverbs, Elliot? Um, I mean, maybe because I've read it more often than the others. Okay. Um, Because... I know that by spending a lot of time in it over many years, it's it's given me wisdom to walk in a you know yeah. a certain way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Proverbs chapter one, where it talks about, I mean, the, the first section is the usefulness of proverbs, mm. and it's pretty clear, you know. It's, yeah. Yeah. So those are the reasons why I like it. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, and you see, like in uh, Proverbs chapter 9, kind of like the struggle between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and how they're personified, right? And uh, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and like the struggle between following one or the other, and how we're intended to follow Lady Wisdom, but Lady Folly is right there trying to pull us um, aside. 
And so it gives a nice um, framework, right, in how we are supposed to live and rules that we're supposed to live by in order to have a godly life. Um, but then, as I said, Job kind of throws a wrench into that and shows that it's not going to always work out that way. Um, and then Ecclesiastes uh, shows uh, that the world also isn't just so black and white always like that I, either. Um, if, and so let, let's look in Ecclesiastes, though, uh, really quick. Um, Ecclesiastes is considered by many as a depressing book, uh, and, and we will see why. Uh, but turn to chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. So it begins by saying, The words of the preacher, uh, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And look at this very f- second verse. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Uh, this word here, vanity, uh, Many people w- might translate it to meaningless. We say it, life is meaningless, uh, that this book is saying life is meaningless. Uh, it's the same word for vanity here. It depends on what English translation you use. The Hebrew word uh, hebel uh, kind of means uh, vapor or a breath, right? Uh, which sounds interesting. You wouldn't think vapor or breath means vanity. Why is that translated as vanity here? Uh, so the purpose of this book is to show that this book isn't saying that life is meaningless, as many might say it does, but it says that life has this meaning, but it's impossible for us to understand what that meaning is. Uh, we can't grasp it. It's like a vapor. It's like a breath. It has like some substance. We think we understand what life means, and we're going to grab onto it, and then when we try to grab onto it, it kind of just vanishes away like a vapor. It's like a breath that just goes away that we can't hold on to the substance of what life all entails. It just vanishes away. That's why we say it's vanity of vanities. Part of Ecclesiastes, which makes it not as enjoyable to read, is because it starts, it's a progression. Mm-hmm. It starts with basically, yeah, I, I can't find anything. You know, it's like that kind of story. You, anybody who uses a, quotes a verse out of Ecclesiastes, you got to be careful where you took the verse from because based in the story, yeah. it's not the life verse you're going to pull out. You know, <laughs> and, and so also when you take Job, you can take whole chapters in it that are really the wrong people talking. Exactly. Even Job's thing gets chastised at the end. It's the story of the whole thing. So anybody who's quoting, well, my life versus Job such and such, you'd be like, what? You know, because, you know, who, which, which actor was saying that's those lines. So that's why most people don't go to either of those that much because it's, yeah. they are such a, it's a more of a story that you yeah. have to kind of, and, and I think you got accept and hold right where uh, you have to when you're interpreting the book of Ecclesiastes specifically since that's what we're on you have to take it as a whole so I think you're right and so if you look at your note sheet interpretive journey of Ecclesiastes 12 
13 through 14. It has to go to the very... at the end. Yeah, the very two last two sentences at the end. But I want us to start in the chapter 1 and kind of work our way to that so we could get like the full picture, as Lonnie is saying. Because he's right that it does build off of each other. It starts off by showing that all is vanity, all is meaningless. It's like a vapor that disappears when we try to understand, grasp the meaning. And then it goes through and shows why he says this. So it starts off, I'm going to just read some sections for us. And we just have a couple minutes left. Verse 4, a generation goes, so verse 4 of chapter 1, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. So here it's just life goes on and we die. New people are born. They die. Generations go on and the earth remains, right? So we're just seeing this constant flow of things that almost showing right away that no matter what you do, it's going to remain in, in death here. Jumping over to chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining, examining it all. This is like a great philosopher. <laughs> How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So we have the righteous and the wise. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, but both are before him. It is a shame for all since the, the same, or it is the same for all since the same Event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, for the good and the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifices. So it's the same for all, whether you're good or evil, in the end, and how we um, end up, right, with death at the end. Verse 11, chapter 9. Again, I saw that under the sun, the the race is not uh, to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligence, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. Here, you can't ultimately plan out your life because you could try so hard to um, live a long, healthy life with riches, but then time and chance come and I could sweep it all away. And someone who never tried to prepare for life could live long beyond you because it's time and chance, right? So vanity of vanities, it's, it's meaningless as it, as it continues. Uh, and then that's then finally, and uh, chapter 12, since we're running out of time, uh, last, last two verses. So, but at the end of it all, Right, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Still, to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here we're seeing uh, in the text, the preacher, the author of this book is, is showing, while we're still here on this side of heaven, on earth, it seems meaningless. Uh, things are up for chance. We can't ultimately control our destinies no matter how hard we try. 
uh, or prepare ourselves one way or the other, uh, we die just the same as anyone else who, no matter how one might have lived their life. So I challenge you then uh, this week to try to take this through the interpretive journey here since we didn't have time to do it together uh, in light of the entire book because I think that's the only way we could truly do it for the last two verses in relation to how uh, the preacher, the author of this book, uh, or portrays or uh, says the last two verses here. So try to take that through the interpretive journey yourself and uh, you can see where you could end up with that. Uh, reflection for the week, we'll just make that reflection for the week, but I had written on here, read the entire book of Ecclesiastes and journal how Christ brings meaning into life as we pursue to live a holy life or as we pursue a holy life. So, I know I try to fit a whole lot into one week, uh, and that might have been too much, but this was our last week. So are there any final questions, thoughts about anything that we've talked about? Or even from previous weeks? If not... I will close us out in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for all your goodness, Lord, and for your son. And we thank you that it's through Christ alone, Lord, that uh, we're able to be heirs, Lord, uh, joint heirs, that we're joint heirs with Christ. And I pray, Lord, as we practice in studying your word, Lord, Uh, that we will uh, just get better at it, Lord, that we will uh, faithfully be able to interpret and know your word, Lord, through the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, and as we practice interpreting your word through the different genres, Lord, I pray that we will get better at the genres that we may not be as proficient in, Lord, and we will just look to you and... uh, Seek help out, Lord, as well with the church, uh, with others around us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.